0: Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Our first story on the front page shows a fireman, Captain, or Council Bluffs Fire Captain Mike Godbout, pointing out the features on a model of a carbon monoxide detector that are available for free with installation from the fire department. And the title of the story is Keeping Informed, Carbon Monoxide Safety Crucial in Winter. Carbon monoxide poisoning is often referred to as the silent killer. And the Council Bluffs Fire Department is doing its part to raise awareness and keep the public safe. Carbon monoxide, also known as CO, is an odorless, colorless gas that is found in the fumes produced by burning fuel. Carbon monoxide is produced from things such as a running vehicle or a small engine, natural gas appliances like stoves or furnaces, fireplaces, grills, and more. Nearly impossible to detect by sight or smell, CO can be present in homes without any noticeable signs. If a leak occurs, CO can build up inside homes or other buildings and poison people and animals who inhale it, breathe in too much of the gas and victims can pass out or die as a result of poisoning. Carbon monoxide poisoning often mimics flu symptoms, which include headaches, dizziness, upset stomach, vomiting, chest pain, and confusion. Council Bluffs Fire Captain Mike Godbout, that's G-O-D-B-O-U-T, has been leading the charge in the department's mission to keep the public informed on the issue and their homes safe. He said CO leak incidents are usually more common in the winter season, when most homes in the area are burning fires or cranking up the furnace to warm their homes. The best way to be safe, he said, is to install CO detectors. Godbout said, it's important to have carbon monoxide detectors installed in places where fuel-burning appliances are located and where residents can hear them if the alarm goes off, especially if they're sleeping so shared living spaces and near bedrooms are common places to put them. There are several models of CO detectors on the market these days, many of them combined with smoke detectors. He said people should know the difference between a smoke alarm and a CO alarm. Smoke alarms produce three long beeps, while CO alarms give out four short beeps, which are universal across all detector models. Single chirps made by detectors mean that the battery is low of the unit and, or that the unit should be replaced. He said to replace detector batteries once a year. According to the Centers for Disease Control, there are more than 400 deaths and more than five or 50,000 hospitalizations due to unintentional carbon monoxide poisoning in the U.S. every year. Godbout said the fire department gets around a hundred calls every year. While speaking on the importance of carbon monoxide awareness He recalled a recent incident that could have ended in numerous fatalities had the fire department not been called. He said they received a call from an apartment building where several people had been feeling ill over the span of a couple days. Upon arrival, alarms equipped in the responding ambulance's jump kit went off immediately. Their meters read lethally high levels of carbon monoxide, and two people were transported to the hospital for care. The crew also found the neighboring apartment to have high CO2 levels. He said if the one person who thought to call had not made that choice, they and their neighbors all could have died. That's why having detectors installed is so important. We can't prevent every incident, but we can prevent people from being sick, injured, or worse, he said. He said that along with installing CO detectors, It's also important to have any fuel-burning appliances inspected regularly. If a carbon monoxide alarm goes off, go outside immediately and call 911. If a person or family is unable to leave the home due to circumstances like the recent brutal winter weather, he said to isolate in a room with windows and open them to let in fresh air while waiting for emergency crews. The Council Bluffs Fire Department provides free smoke and carbon monoxide detectors for Council Bluffs residents in need. You can schedule an installation by calling this phone number, 712-890-4646. That's 712-890-4646. The Nebraska Poison Center's phone line is open 24 hours a day, every day of the year. And that can be reached at 1-800-222-1222. That's 1-800-222-1222. The other story on the front page, GOP chair, caucus turnout shows Iowans care. And this is from Aaron Murphy of the League Gazette Des Moines Bureau. National news organizations that called the winner of the 2024 Iowa Republican Presidential Precinct Caucuses did not violate any journalist ethics, Republican Party of Iowa Chairman Jeff Kaufman concedes, but, he asserts, they violated the spirit of the caucuses themselves. In an interview Friday with the Gazette, Kaufman discussed the third caucus cycle of his tenure as state party chairman, how the caucuses ran on Monday night, what the results mean for the future of the caucuses, whether low turnout will hurt Re- Iowa Republicans first in the nation status and those quirk, quick rather caucus night calls by national news organizations. Former President Donald Trump won the first in the nation caucuses in historic fashion, becoming the first non incumbent Republican candidate to surpass 50 percent support and by beating the field by more than 30 percent percentage points. Trump won 50% of the votes cast by 110,000 Iowa Republican caucus goers, while Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was a distant second at 21%, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley third at 19%. The Associated Press, CNN, Fox News, NBC News, and other national news organizations called the caucuses for former President Donald Trump at roughly 7.30 p.m. Iowa time. Only a half hour after the caucuses started and, Kaufman said, before some precincts had completed their presidential preference process, and even while some people were still standing in line to get into their precinct. Kaufman said he understands those news organizations may have been competing to be among the first to call the caucus winner. But that quick call upset Kaufman because it came before some Iowans had even made their choice in the caucuses, a choice that, can be swayed at the precinct level by those speaking on behalf of their candidate. Quote, we're not dealing with any issue other than they wanted to beat each other in the game. And I get that. I understand the rush. But they all know the spirit of our caucus. They all know that the difference between a caucus and a primary is that in the caucus, you have a conversation ahead of time. People that are undecided can come on on and hear one more time. To call the race that early, when we have people still in line, did it change anything? No, it didn't. Did they break any ethical rule of journalism? No, they didn't. But they also wouldn't have been breaking any ethical rules of journalists if they would have respected the nature of the caucus and held off reporting the results so soon, unquote. National news organizations use extensive data gathering methods to enable them to project election winners before the official results are fully tabulated. During elections, those organizations do not declare winners until after the polls are closed to avoid influencing voters before they've cast a ballot. The Iowa caucuses, however, do not have an exact time at which the presidential process is completed, creating a gray area for when news organizations can feel comfortable projecting a winner. Kaufman said 7.30 p.m. was too early. He said the news organizations should have waited until more of the results were officially reported, saying that only 400 precincts out of more than 1,600 statewide had been officially reported when the call was made. Turning to page two, there's a photo of um, Governor Kim Reynolds speaking with reporters during a taping of Iowa Press on January 19. And the headline is, Reynolds says gun laws wouldn't help. No new laws restricting gun access would have prevented a recent fatal shooting at Perry High School, Iowa Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds said Friday. Reynolds was asked during the recording of this weekend's episode of Iowa Press on Iowa PBS whether the gun regulations should be a part of the discussion around how to prevent school shootings, like the one on January 4 in Perry, in which a 6th grade student and the school's principal were killed. Quote, no additional gun laws would have prevented what happened, Reynolds said. There's just evil out there. Police said the 17-year-old shooter was armed with a shotgun and a small handgun and had placed an explosive device, which did not detonate, in the school. Authorities have not yet said how the shooter acquired the weapons. Reynolds said Iowans, quote, thoughts, hearts, and prayers continue to go out to the Perry community, This is a horrible tragedy, she said. It's certainly nothing that any governor wants to wake up to in the morning and hear of what's happened, she said. Like most Republicans, Reynolds said the focus should be on mental and behavioral health care. She spoke about the actions she has taken as governor, including the creation of a children's mental health care system, which advocates say is underfunded, and funding for mental health care providers, and spoke about her proposal to redesign and streamlined the state's regional delivery system for mental and behavioral health care. Reynolds also spoke about school safety measures undertaken by her administration, including the School Safety Bureau, which received $100 million in state-assigned federal funding and provides schools with an assessment of their safety needs. I'm proud of what we've done, Reynolds said. I've made behavioral health and mental health a key part of my priorities, from the moment that I was sworn in as governor of this state, she also praised the response from local law enforcement and emergency responders to the Perry school shooting, which she called, quote, incredible. Another story Reynolds, Iowa doesn't require all nine AEAs. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds said Friday she does not believe the state needs all nine area education agencies that provide support and expertise to schools, which she has proposed overhauling while insisting she isn't calling for their closures. Reynolds' proposal would redesign AEA's funding structure, streamline the services they offer, and create a new oversight in the Department of Education. She said her proposal was needed to update a 50-year-old system and to improve special education services and outcomes for students with disabilities. By narrowing the focus of AEA's work, the education agency have strayed beyond their original charge of supporting special education services, she said, and they have become too top heavy. When asked Friday during a recording of her appearance on this weekend's episode of Iowa Press on Iowa PBS whether Iowa needs nine AEAs, Reynolds said no. We're a small state, she said. That's why I did the realignment bill with state government. I need local governments to take a look at the level of bureaucracy that we have in place to serve the citizens of Iowa. It's too much. We need to drive consistency. We need to get that funding in the classroom and do everything we can to improve the outcomes for these children. Reynolds' office has insisted that the governor is not calling for the closure of any AEAs and that her legislative proposal Likewise, does not require any to close. However, Reynolds has noted there already has been consolidation in the system. There used to be 15 AEAs in Iowa, and now there are nine. And her plan gives school districts the option to use funding for special education expertise elsewhere. Quote, we need to do something big. We need to reform. I think that by giving the districts the ability to hold the AEAs accountable, to decide what program works best for the students that they are serving, she said on Iowa Press. Reynolds' proposal would restructure the way agencies are funded. Instead of state and federal funding going to the AEAs to fund the services they provide, Reynolds says Iowa is the only state that operates that way, that money would instead go to the K-12 through 12 public school districts, which would determine whether to use that funding for those AEA services or find similar services elsewhere, either at a different AEA or through a private company. Reynolds' proposal also would create an oversight apparatus in the State Education Department. The AEAs now are overseen by locally appointed boards. It's justification for her proposal to overhaul and refocus Iowa's AEAs. Reynolds has cited statistics showing Iowa 4th grade students with disabilities performed below the national average, and 4th fourth, fourth and 8th grade students with disabilities ranked 30th or lower on national reading and math assessments. Some unconscionable, Reynolds said. Reynolds this week announced some changes to her initial proposal, which she unveiled January 10, the day after highlighting it during the annual condition of the state address. The amendment to make those changes, which would loosen the types of services AEAs could be allowed to offer beyond special education, has yet to be filed with the rest of the bill. Reynolds has taken the unusual step of issuing public statements on consecutive days this week to update Iowans about the legislative process of her proposal. In those public updates, Reynolds said she has received feedback about her proposal from parents, teachers, superintendents and state lawmakers another story about the AEA situation bill altered to allow AEA services this is from Tom Barton of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau one week after proposing a major overhaul of Iowa's area education agencies that assist students with disabilities Governor Kim Reynolds has proposed loosening a main restriction in her bill that's caused heartburn for some lawmakers, parents, and teachers. Iowa's nine area education agencies would continue providing general education and media services if requested by school districts and approved by the Iowa Department of Education under the proposed change. Quote, AEAs play an important role in our state, and that role will continue, but their role should be entirely focused on students, not maintaining a system," Reynolds posted on social media platform X, formerly known as Twitter. Reynolds, in her condition of the state address last week, outlined a proposal to reform Iowa's area education agencies that provide expertise to educators and families. Under her proposal, AEAs would be prohibited from offering services beyond special education for students, and school districts could drop their current agency, and look elsewhere for the services instead. Under her proposed bill, filed January 10 as House Study Bill 542, Senate Study Bill 303—excuse me, 3073, school districts would be given the option to keep funding they'd otherwise funnel to their AEA and allocate it for special education services as they choose, either at an AEA or at a private company. AEAs would focus solely on students with disabilities, her proposal said. An independent oversight would move to the State Department of Education, not the district appointed boards that oversee the nine AEAs now. AEAs would no longer provide other education services, media services, and professional development. Her bill, as currently written, would eliminate property taxes that are collected to support AEA functions that are not related to special education. The governor's staff has projected that would be an impact of $68 million in fiscal year 2025. The state would launch a media services grant program through the Department of Education to support schools and would shift $2.1 million in professional development funding and $3.38 million in mental health funding to the department of education to support local school districts the republican governor said the changes are needed because the state's nine area education agencies have grown beyond their core mission of serving students with disabilities and some have become bloated and ineffective since they were created in the 70s but still leave districts without choice but to pay for them anyway but after a meeting with parents teachers and lawmakers Reynolds on Thursday proposed an amended version that would allow the AEAs to continue providing general education services and media services. The agencies would continue to provide all special education services they do now, including child find and early access for children from birth to three years of age. Quote, student success is my central focus. And the goal of my bill is to ensure Iowa students with disabilities receive the world-class education they deserve, she said in a statement. The statement continues, Schools and parents know their students best, and this bill ensures that they are in the driver's seat in deciding how best to support their students. This model will give schools control over their money and create more transparency in the system, while also ensuring A.E.A.'s can provide the education support some schools rely on, unquote. Parents, teachers, and A.E.A. staff warned changing the structure of the agency so quickly would upend services provided to districts and lead to disastrous outcomes. They note under the governor's proposal as written, A.E.A.s would no longer be able to provide experts to schools as they make curriculum decisions, support in implementing new curriculum, mental health support, services for students learning English as a second language, and technology and cyber security services, among other support. Quote, We appreciate the willingness of the governor and legislators to listen to stakeholders served by the AEAs, as well as our staff, on this important piece of legislation, said a statement Thursday from the Grant Wood Area Education Agency, which serves a seven-county region, including Lynn and Johnson Counties. The statement continues, We are humbled by the outpouring of support and recognize that at the heart of the matter are critically important services that students, families, and educators rely on every day. While today's news signals that policymakers are listening, we have a responsibility to those we serve to press forward in advocating for a statewide support structure, that retains the services that children, educators, and families deserve. The statement continued, We aren't there yet. We maintain that the current framework by which we deliver services is still the most economical and effective for Iowa, ensuring economy of scale and local control. House and Senate Democrats maintained their opposition to the plan Thursday, and cast doubt on Reynolds' changes until they can see the actual text of the proposed amendment, which is still being drafted. House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst, Democrat, Windsor Heights, accused Reynolds of having, quote, gotten caught out a little over her skis, and is perhaps seeing what happens when you don't involve anyone in the conversation before you draft a major piece of legislation. Confirst also slammed the governor for not including Democrats in her conversations. That's not how you govern, she, govern, govern. rather, Confirst told reporters Thursday. You work with the partners involved. You listen to stakeholders and you continue the process. Converse added, a scalpel approach would have been nice and this is a sledgehammer. This completely dismantles the system. It takes a very broad swipe at the AEAs without a lot of consideration for the services that are provided. And Iowans are making that clear to the governor and lawmakers, she said. Senate Minority Leader Pam Yoakum, a Democrat of Dubuque, whose late daughter received special education services through the AEAs, said the proposal could disproportionately affect rural areas and lead to higher costs for districts to provide those services themselves. Confirst and Yoakum were joined by Kate Fairfax, a speech-language pathologist and a mother of twins in kindergarten, who receive AEA services in the Des Moines area. Her daughters were born 10 weeks premature and spent a lot of time in the neonatal intensive care unit. The AEA came to their home and worked with the family to make sure that the twins were developing appropriately. One daughter developed brain bleeds, has cerebral palsy, and is also deaf. Quote, and we are just so, so grateful for the AEA and everything they've done for us with Audrey at school, she said, through the AEA. Her daughter has access to physical and occupational therapists, speak pathology, a teacher of the deaf, and an audiologist. It was so hard sending her to school, but knowing that the AEA was there supporting her and that we got to work with them as a team with the school district to really train all her teachers and paraeducators to make sure they knew how to communicate with Audrey best and how to help her succeed in class has been invaluable, she said. AEA staff work with her daughter's teachers and school staff on how to safely transfer her daughter between all of her different equipment. She said her daughter uses two wheelchairs, a walker, or a gait trainer. House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican of New Hartford, said House and Senate Republicans have been working with the governor to address concerns they're hearing from Iowans. And this is just, or this is the way the process is supposed to work, he said. He continues, We're trying to find a solution in which we can still achieve better results for our special education students and give more accountability for our school districts when it comes to that money, Grassley said, speaking with reporters on Thursday. Every school district is going to be different in their needs, he said. This has not been about eliminating special ed services. This is about accountability. And I think the path we're going down now does an even better job of that and giving more control to school districts to still be able to access access those services, especially in those rural districts, Grassley said. And turning to the Digest, Des Moines school killer given 65 years. A judge sentenced an Iowa man to 65 years in prison Thursday for killing two students at a Des Moines alternative school and injuring the program's founder. Polk County District Judge Larry McClellan sentenced Preston Walls, age 19, to consecutive terms for his September conviction on charges of second degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, and assault causing serious injury. A jury convicted Walls after he acknowledged killing Rashad Carr, age 16, and Gianni Dameron, age 18, on Janu- January 23, 2023. At the Starts Right Here Alternative School on the edge of downtown Des Moines. Will Keeps, the school's founder, was also shot but survived. He quickly reopened the program, which is operated through a contract with Des Moines Public Schools. Walls said he feared for his life after earlier encounters with Carr and Dameron. Walls must serve at least 40 years of his sentence before he's eligible for release. He also must pay $150,000 in restitution to the families of Carr and Dameron. Our next brief, Nunn announces $2.4 million fundraising haul. Iowa U.S. Representative Zach Nunn, a Republican, announced this week he raised more than $2.4 million in 2023 and has more than $1.5 million in cash on hand. Nunn, a former Iowa State Senator, is in his first term representing Iowa's 3rd Congressional District. He defeated incumbent Democrat Cindy Axne to win the seat in 2022. Multiple Democrats have announced their candidacy, candidacy rather, to challenge him in what is expected to be a highly competitive election in November. With more than $2.4 million raised and already locking in significant endorsements to support his reelection, it is clear that Iowans want Zach Nunn to continue to represent them in D.C., said non-campaign manager Kendall Parker in a statement. Our next brief, New Politics endorses Bacom in 3rd District. A political group that endorses veterans for office has endorsed Lenan Bacom, a Democrat running for Congress in Iowa's 3rd Congressional District. New Politics announced the endorsement Thursday. The group mostly endorses Democrats, but it also lists Republicans among its endorsements. According to its webpage, New Politics is, quote, working towards electing a new generation of political leadership by helping service-oriented leaders run for public office, unquote. Bacom, a National Guard veteran, announced his campaign for Congress in November, drawing endorsements from many of the state's top Democrats. Bacom worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture under Secretary Tom Vilsack in both the Biden and Obama administrations. The third district is represented by Representative Zach Nunn, a Republican and former state senator. Nunn served in the U.S. Air Force and Air National Guard. Melissa Vine, a nonprofit uh, leader from Des Moines, is also running in the Democratic primary to represent the district. Our next brief, Iowa Senate Republican Leader raises $467,000. Iowa Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer. Republican from Grimes announced on Friday that he raised $467,825 in 2023. That money is a record for a legislative leader in a non election year, according to the Iowa GOP. Whitfer is also going into 2024 with $587,317 in cash on hand. Senate Republicans won a two thirds supermajority in 2022 increasing their seats in the 50-person chamber to 34. The investments from so many Iowans into my campaign shows broad support for our agenda, said Whitfer. We will continue to deliver pro-growth results for Iowans this session. The 2024 elections will be another opportunity for Senate Republicans to share our vision with voters. I look forward to working with the senators and candidates to have another successful election cycle. And that's the halfway point for the reading of today's Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Um, all material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Turning to the obituaries for today, Jackie Hargis, that's H A R G I S H 87. Passed away January 20th at the Bethany Lutheran Nursing Home. Um, services for Jackie. Uh, visitation at the Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home. Uh, Wednesday, January 24th from 5 to 7. Funeral service also at the Funeral Home. 11 a.m. Thursday, January 25th. An interment will take place at the Lewis Township Cemetery. Evelyn M. Banks, age 96, former resident of Glenwood, passed away Tuesday, January 16th, at the Prairie Gate in Council Bluffs. Services, uh, no services are planned. A private internment will take place at a later date at the Glenwood Cemetery in Glenwood, Iowa. Thomas H. Dunham does not say a... uh, an age or where he's from, he was born in 1939, passed away January 11th. Visitation Thursday, January 25th, 5 to 7 p.m. followed by a vigil at 7 at the West Center Chapel, Mass of Christian Burial, Friday the 26th, 10.30 a.m. at the St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church. Um, Tom has made an anatomical donation to Creighton University Medical School which will further medical education and advance medical science for the future. Donald L. Rowland, Don, age 79, of Council Bluffs, passed away Monday, January 15. Um, Services, visitation Saturday, January 27, 11 to 12 p.m. at the Westlawn Hillcrest Funeral Home, followed by a funeral service at 12 p.m., Burial to follow at the Westlawn Hillcrest Memorial Park. Rita Ann Schicchilone, Skitch, I need to spell this one, S-C-I-C-H-I-L-O-N-E. There will be a, she was born in 1951, passed away January 18th, Massive Christian Burial. Thursday, 1 p.m. at the St. Patrick Catholic Church in Council Bluffs. Visitation with the family, Wednesday, 5 to 7, at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Next, we have Robert D. Chadwick, uh, age 88, passed away January 19th. Um, Services, memorial service, Thursday, 11 a.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Memorial service Thursday, 11 a.m. with visitation starting an hour prior to the service. Elizabeth R. Frederick, age 87, passed away January 17. Um, Visitation, Friday, uh, 5 to 6 p.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. And funeral mass, Saturday, January 27th. 10.30 a.m. at the Corpus Christi Queen of the Apostles Catholic Church. Now we'll turn to the opinion page. The political cartoon is a close-up of what looks to be a Mickey Mouse watch. Um, Mickey Mouse's face is Ron DeSantis. Both of his hands are pointing straight up to the 12 o'clock position, where the words, instead of the number 12, it says, Time's Up. This first opinion um, comes from Kathleen Parker. Uh, She writes for the Washington Post. And it's titled, In Murdoch's World, You Don't Have to Make Stuff Up. In the ever-twisting saga of Alex Murdoch, convicted almost a year ago of the brutal slaying of his wife and son, a new character has been added to the cast. A Hollywood director could have done no better than retired Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court, Jean Toll, that's T O A L, a brilliant jurist and slayer of the pompous and profane. Already, she's pricked the pride of Murdoch's lawyers, who appeared before her last week in a prehearing to lay out the rules for the upcoming hearing to decide whether he will be granted a new trial in the double murders. Toll alone will make the decision. Toll was appointed to the Murdoch case after the previous judge Clifton Newman recused himself before retiring late last year. Newman's recusal at the behest of Murdoch's defense team was based on the judge's unfiltered contempt for the defendant as he sentenced Murdoch to two consecutive life terms. In the months since Murdoch's six-week trial ended, several other proceedings have brought him into various courthouses. In November, he pleaded guilty to 22 of more than 100 financial crimes, including fraud and money laundering, by which he bilked clients, law partners, and family members out of millions of dollars. For these crimes, he has to serve at least 22 years. That's, quote, a practical life sentence for the 55-year-old said state prosecutor, Creighton Waters. In October, an almost miracle had seemed to land in Murdoch's lap when the South Carolina Court of Appeals agreed to send the murder case back to circuit court to consider allegations of jury tampering, implicating Colton County Clerk of Court Rebecca Hill. Three jurors told similar stories to defense attorneys Richard Harpootlian and Jim Griffin, according to Harpootlian. Each one allegedly said Hill had told them to ignore Murdoch's testimony. Most seriously, perhaps, she allegedly played a significant role in the dismissal of one juror known as the Egg Juror, just hours before deliberations began. The nickname was born during a brief moment of levity, when Newman asked if the female juror had left anything in the jury room. She answered that she had left a dozen eggs there, and she wanted to take them with her. Allegedly, the Egg Lady didn't think Murdoch was guilty, and spoke to at least three people outside the courtroom about the trial. This ostensibly mattered a great deal to Hill, who was penning a self-published book at the time with co-author Neil Gordon. One not guilty vote would have hung more than the jury. Things really went downhill when it was discovered that Hill had plagiarized most of her book's preface. She admitted the plagiarism, explaining she was in a hurry to meet a deadline. Gordon then pulled the book and promised to donate his proceeds to charity. Ironically, It was Hill's book that apparently got jurors upset enough to talk about her to the defense. She wrote that she knew Murdoch was guilty after she and jurors visited the family home where the murders took place. She also said she was nervous and she was about to read the verdicts as she was about to read the verdicts aloud. Quote, I was mostly concerned about Alex being found innocent when I knew in my heart that he was guilty, she wrote. This was enough to prompt the three jurors to lawyer up and speak out. They said Hill told told jurors not to be fooled by Murdoch and coached them to watch his body movements, warning them that he could cry on cue. She allegedly denied them cigarette breaks until they reached a verdict. Deliberations lasted less than three hours. She also handed out journalists' business cards to jurors and met privately with the forewoman in the women's restroom, according to the defense. On January 29, the 12 jurors and Hill had been ordered to testify directly to Toll. She said the hearing would not be a trial of Hill and that she wasn't interested in the egg juror, only the 12 who actually handed down the guilty verdict. In a no-nonsense voice familiar to practically every member of the South Carolina bar, she witheringly dismissed the defense attorney's arguments and said their witnesses would not be called. Toll also noted thus, that, thus far, no evidence supports any of the allegations, and she said, Murdoch's lawyers have to prove not only improper contact between Hill and the jury, but also that these interactions influence the guilty verdict. This seems an awfully high bar for the defense team to clear. Even if Toll rules against a new trial, Murdoch still has a solid case for appeal especially given what is known about the egg jurors experience. Suffice it to say, the full story of the Murdoch trial has yet to be told. And that was from Kathleen Parker of the Washington post. Next opinion comes from Sarah Hunter Simonson. She writes, I'm 32 and I haven't worked a real full-time job since I was 23 and finished my two year commitment with teach for America since 2013. I've piecemealed together part-time jobs that included private tutor, substitute teacher, fitness instructor, storytime program leader, and freelance writer. For my generation, this trajectory isn't unusual. Forty five percent of all freelancers are millennials, and almost half of all working millennials are freelancing. Now I'm colliding with the problems of part-time employment as a norm. In 2013, after two years of teaching 7th grade writing, I decided to apply for master's programs and took on my first part-time gigs as a tutor and substitute teacher. At the time, I didn't see myself as underemployed, a dreaded condition that parents, economists, and journalists caution against, and which then applied to almost 20% of millennials. I did consider following, following my mom's footsteps to law school, but I ultimately chose to pursue my dream of being a writer. I was still on one of my parents' health insurance, thanks to Obamacare. I had saved money while living at home during my time with Teach for America, and I knew I could keep working part-time while in school full-time to get my master's degree in creative writing. I began teaching fitness classes in addition to tutoring. Gigging still felt normal and innocuous. I wasn't even deterred when I got my First IRS notification that I owed the government more taxes, unaware of the costs of being self-employed. At 24, not having paid leave, a 401k, or the stability comes with a salary felt normal. But a year later, I became a primary caretaker. Giggings, perks of flexibility and control became necessities when my mom was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Working multiple part-time jobs was the only way I could care for her stay in school, and earn money. During this period, I married my husband, so I moved on to his health insurance before I turned 26, making use of the benefits he received with his full-time job at a big company. Not long after, I got pregnant. To maintain some income, I resumed tutoring just weeks after my daughter was born. Simultaneously, my mother's health rapidly declined. I was sandwiched between taking care of a baby being present for my mom and working with my students, trapped between the broken caregiving options in the United States. Even after my mom died and my focus shifted to my baby, it was hard to balance childcare and work. If my 20s were proof of our country's unsustainable workforce model and childcare and elder care crises, the pandemic showed how quickly those issues could upend lives. In March of 2020, my daughter's preschool closed, and I gave birth to my son. Like too many millennial women, I was forced to leave the workforce. It took more than two years before I could manage another part-time job as a freelance writer. By then, I was too grateful for a gig to complain about the hollow foundation underpinning my work. Uh, Get out, the inconsistency, low and slow pay, instability, and lack of benefits. Instead, I continued to freelance, and I've occasionally returned to tutoring. I also found a part-time job, working as the storytime lady at my local bookstore. Last year, 64 million people worked freelance in the gig economy. When 38% of our workforce is in this situation and contributing $1.3 trillion in annual earnings to the economy, the country has a responsibility to make that work more sustainable. Our peer countries have done that by widely providing workers support, such as family caregiving leave, parental leave, pension credits for caregivers, sick leave, and paid vacation. And this author is a Memphis-based writer who is working on her first novel. And going back to some hard news, Iowa postal workers terminated after undelivered mail is found at their homes. Two Iowa postal workers were fired or forced to resign last year, after investigators found undelivered mail in their homes. According to federal records, Cassie Keene worked as a rural associate mail carrier for the U.S. Postal Service in Central City last year. In April, the area postmaster began fielding reports of undelivered mail in the community. In May, the Postal Service officials allegedly went to Keene's home and, according to state records, found multiple containers of undelivered mail as well as bottles of liquor inside two separate vehicles Keene used to deliver the mail. Some of the undelivered mail was at least a month old. According to testimony given at a subsequent state hearing, postal officials went back to Keene's home 10 days later with an official U.S. Postal Service resignation form that was partially filled out. Keene completed the form and was considered to have resigned. But at a December 2023 hearing, On Keen's request for unemployment benefits. Keen alleged she was not in a good frame of mind when she filled out that paperwork. Her husband had passed away just a few weeks before and that she said she had been forced to resign. She alleged that she was told if she refused to resign she'd never be able to work for the Postal Service again. The Postal Service disputed the allegation and stated that had Keen refused to resign, the agency would have allowed her to continue her employment. Administrative law judge Blair Bennett recently ruled that Keene's testimony of being forced to resign was not credible, noting that she knew about and had used the union's grievance process when the postal service had previously tried to fire her for unspecified reasons. Bennett denied Keene's request for unemployment benefits. In a separate case, Dijon Johnson, a carrier assistant for the Clinton Post Office, was placed on unpaid leave in late October, pending the completion of employment termination proceedings. State records indicate the action was in response to three separate allegations of mail theft. According to the records, those allegations triggered an investigation that led to the Postal Service using a GPS locator and video surveillance equipment to determine that Johnson had taken a customer's package to his own home. The records indicate the Postal Service informed Johnson in November that he was eligible for termination pay from December 7th through January 16th, but that as of January 17th, 2024, he would no longer be employed by the agency. Clinton Postmaster Mary Atwood said Friday that Johnson is still in the process of being fired. It wasn't just one package. It was several packages that were missing while in his care, she said. After a recent hearing on Johnson's request for unemployment benefits, administrative law judge Carly Smith ruled Johnson was ineligible for such benefits. Quote, The employer has established Johnson was suspended due to the theft of mail, Smith ruled. Theft from an employer is generally disqualifying misconduct. State and federal court records indicate no criminal charges have been imposed in either the Keene case or the Johnson case. And we've got some local sports, high school girls basketball. Papio South tops Lewis Central in overtime clash of Titans. And there's a great photo of a young lady. It's uh, South's Lyric Judson um, trying to shoot and defender from Central Brook Larson is uh, all over her. Lewis Central fell in overtime to Papillon La Vista South. That's from Nebraska. In a clash of titans at the Nebraska Prep Classic at Creighton's DJ Sokol Arena on Saturday. Glenwood and Tri-Center also played. Final score, Papio South 55, Lewis Central 50. In a clash of titans, um, an overtime classic unfolded as Papillon La Vista won 50 over Lewis Central. In a game loaded with volleyball talent and more watching from the stands, Addison Medek took over late. The younger sister of two time Nebraska Gatorade volleyball player of the year Lauren, the Papio South freshman, scored five points in overtime. But head coach Andy Gerlichs thought she might have made a bigger impact. As far as I was concerned, She just got to stop fouling so she can get more minutes, he said. But yeah, late in that game, she was able to get to the rim and get to the free throw line and convert. So she's a special player. For Lewis Central head coach Chris Hannafin, the message in overtime was to not foul. Papio South shot eight shots from the stripe in the extra period, but he thought his Titans did everything they could to win. We felt like we had plenty of time just to keep playing defense, he said. And, you know, we failed and didn't want to, but it happens. It wasn't it or it wasn't a case of being soft or being out of control. It was just a kid trying to make play, and it happened so all right. I told the girls all along it was a great game for us to have. We needed a game like this. We did everything we could to win the game, just made a couple mistakes down the stretch that probably cost us the game. They just beat the number three team in Nebraska, last night in Omaha. So it was a good ball game for us to have. Obviously, we want a different result. To get to overtime, the Titans from Nebraska needed to come back from a nine-point deficit early in the third quarter. Gerlich said it took a lot of toughness. I mean, our girls emptied the tank last night to beat a really good Central team, and we had a little bit of a slow start here today and kind of dug down and found a way to beat a good Lewis Central team. Papio South tied the game at 34 to end the third quarter and opened the fourth on a three by Cam Exner for their first lead since the first quarter. Exner finished with 16 points to lead Papio South. It's just been a total team win, Gerlich said. But yeah, I mean, Cam's really shooting the ball well right now. The last four or five games, I mean, early on, she was getting the same shots. They looked really good, but just weren't dropping so now it's good to see her get rewarded for her hard work. Twice in the first half, Brooke Larson beat the the end-of-the-quarter buzzer, and Lewis Central established an early edge after a first quarter that had four ties. Lucy Scott, recently surpassing 200 career threes in the Titans uniform, knocked down a trio of threes as Elsie took a 26-19 lead into halftime. Larson and Scott finished with 19 points each for L.C. The Rams were outmatched by Nebraska Class D1 number 1 Pendragons in a late morning game. Um, and North Bend beat Tri-Center 57-31. And Harlan beat Underwood 52-33. And here's a piece I'll try to get all of it in. Clark's collision raises court-storming concern from the Associated Press. The visual of one of the nation's most popular athletes knocked to the floor after a fan who was staring at her phone collided with her while storming the court was a stark reminder of the dangers athletes face when crowds get out of control. Iowa superstar Caitlin Clark was shaken up but not injured in the collision, which occurred Sunday as she headed toward the locker room with teammates following following a 100 to 92 loss to then number 18 Ohio State in Columbus, Ohio. It was the second time in less than 2 weeks that fans have stormed the court at the end of a Big 10 game. It happened January 9th in Lincoln when the Nebraska men knocked off then number 1 Purdue. Boilermakers coach Matt Painter said afterward, game management personnel need to be better prepared to protect athletes caught up in the commotion. Jan Jensen, Iowa's associate head coach, told the AP on Monday that Clark reported no after-effects from the collision. Clark is the reigning national player of the year, and is on the cusp of becoming the all-time leading scorer in Division I women's basketball. Markley said, the Big Ten's game management manual addresses security. Reading from that manual, he said, host institutions must provide adequate security and protection for the visiting teams and officials and their vehicles immediately upon arrival at campus, continuing through their departure. He also said institutions will be held responsible for school-sponsored student and band sections that attack or single out student-athletes. An institution not in compliance with this policy shall be subject to conference review and action. The Southeastern Conference has a multi-tiered fine for field or court storming. The PAC-12 issues fines of $25,000 for a first offense, $50,000 for a second, and $100,000 for a third. So people need to be a little more careful when they're getting all riled up at games. And that's all the time we have for today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Tuesday, January 23rd. I've been your reader, Mary Francis. Have a great day.